Austin, Texas, this is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker, with today's guest, Texas State Senator Brian Birdwell. And now, here's Trey Blocker. Thank you, Charlie Hodge, for that very kind introduction, and welcome, everyone, to the Trey Blocker Show. We are honored and humbled and pleased to have in our studio today State Senator Brian Birdwell. Welcome, Senator, to the show. Hooah. Thank you, Trey. Appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. We appreciate you being on the show. To give our audience a little bit of your background before we get too deep into this episode, um, you were born in Fort Worth, Texas. Yes, sir. You graduated from Lamar University, the Mm -hmm. U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and the University of Missouri, where you got a master's in public administration. Yes, sir. Uh, You are a decorated Army veteran, and you retired as a lieutenant colonel. That's correct, yes, sir. Uh, During your service, you were stationed in various places, including South Korea, Germany, Mm -hmm. Central Asia, and Middle East. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. In 1990, you were deployed to serve in the first Gulf War. That's correct, yes, sir. Uh, In 2001, you were stationed at the Pentagon, and we'll we'll, we'll definitely come back to that. Uh, You have been married to your wife, Mel, for 29-plus years. We are going to hit the 30th anniversary during session, so uh, I've already gotten her 30th anniversary gift. You want to tell us what it is? It was a Kimber Teal Blue 380 semi-auto, very compact, so uh, hua. Nice. So Um, I guess she already knows. Well, yeah, she she already has it. She already has it. you know, Mel, Mel knows all. I mean, you know, I came home, like, oh, well, you got a smirk on the face. I was like, yeah, I'm so proud of your anniversary gift, you know. And you couldn't hold it in. Couldn't hold it in. <laughs> so, uh, but no, she, uh, uh, she's she got it. But, yeah, 30 years. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the Lord uh, gave me the right lady that, you know, even, I mean, I know we'll get to September 11th and, and things before that, but um, uh, if I'm ever – I wish I hope that I I can do for her what she did for me if if the roles are reversed and the caregiver role because um, uh, I don't want to get graphic unless you ask please but, um, but uh, there are some hard hard things that uh, spouses have to do when you have a new normal from a traumatic uh, massive injury and uh, many of the spouses of of our veterans. Uh, uh, know that in great detail sure sure you also have a son matt how old's matt these days matt is uh 28 this may as well uh married to Anne marie almost two years ago we struck it rich on the <laughs> daughter-in-law lottery she came with a good dowry uh, uh in uh, in many respects um uh you know i wasn't really matt's dad i was matt's drill instructor and uh uh, Anne Marie is carrying on that tradition. Oh wow! So nice. uh, yeah, she's uh, but just great. You know, hopefully grandkids in the in the in the future. Um, you know, not too soon, but not too late. You know, kind of thing. Um, That'll be a whole new role. Get to well, be granddad. Well, I'm, I I want to you know see the baby, say hi, and then I'll say I see you in about five years when you're ready to go to the gun range. <laughs> so you know, so, why, why uh, wait five years? Huh? Yeah, well, so. <laughs> that kind of thing, but no, no, but it, it, you know, there are, again, I, I don't want to try to bring everything back to September 11th, but, um, every day after that day, uh, the Lord has given me as a gift, whether it's to be with Mel, watch Matt graduate from high school, graduate from college, you know, from tech back in 13, you know, get married, you know, um, uh, had the Lord, uh, deemed it my appointed time that day, I wouldn't have seen those things and so uh even though i'm a little more extra crispy than i am original recipe (laughs) um it's a treat to to still be here in this great state this great nation and have the the rest of my life to uh to see the things that come in this stage of life well getting to deliver you know uh jokes like that i mean just after what you've been through and burn humor is morbid i mean it really you know (laughs) has to be um, well we keep mentioning 9-11 but i mean if people don't know that's one thing we wanted to have you do is sure. tell the story. Well, and because you know, it touched all Americans that lived through it. But I mean, yeah. boy, I, uh, reading your wife's passages from your your book, that's yeah. I, I mean, all it does is make me think about the family dynamic and just how jarring and how do you recover from that? And I just 
I'm looking forward to hearing your story. So, yeah. Senator, we sure. usually spend probably the half first first of the show ep- each episode talking about people's favorite colors and favorite uh, you know flavor of ice cream and just getting to know people. But we we've got well, we've got some serious stuff that we want to talk about, and so I hope you don't mind Not at if all. we just Not dive into it. But but I also don't want to you know uh, rob you of the opportunity to tell us what your favorite flavor of ice cream is. Um, generally do the bluebell homemade vanilla, you know, uh, Mel likes chocolate, you know, I'm boring. I do vanilla. So that was a, that was a tough year when they were gone. It was a real tough it, year. It was, uh, it was, but you know, um, I've been in places where, you know, bluebell does <laughs> look, I, people ask, you know, when I, on those occasions where I wear uniform, um, or my medals, you know, people like, what do all those ribbons and medals mean? It's just I've been to more places where a Porta John is a major home improvement than the average guy, <laughs> and so a lot of those countries that I've been in have no idea what Bluebell is. So I've sure. I've been trained to deal without deal without Bluebell for for months on end. So, um, but no, it, it uh, uh, vanilla, you know, just uh, you know before keep it simple before yeah. I mean John Wayne movies on a Friday night and pizza, you know, just real boring, you know. Just, <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, Senator, sure. you, you were in the Pentagon on September 11th, uh, yeah. 2001, when American Flight 77 crashed into the building. Uh, yeah. You have an amazing story of survival and faith. Uh, and you and your wife penned a book, uh, which I have in front of me, called Refined by Fire, A Family's Triumph in Love and Faith. Yeah. And if you don't mind indulging me, I'd... I'd I'd love to read a first, the sure. first couple paragraphs out of this introduction, and I'm going to turn it over to you to tell us sure. about that day in the aftermath. But um, this is you speaking in the introduction to the book. On September 11, 2001, American Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon. I was standing 15 to 20 y- yards from the point of impact. It took only a few seconds to change my life forever. The searing second- and third-degree burns that were inflicted upon more than 60% of my body brought months of absolute torture. For weeks, no one knew if I would live or die. But God knew. He had a plan for my life. And no terrorist would be able to work against the purposes of God. My survival didn't by luck or mere chance. It happened because a sovereign God had a specific plan for my life. And while I do not understand why God chose to allow me to live when so many others perished, I do know that he was with me. Yeah. Yeah. So it, if you don't mind, Senator, would you sure. tell us about that day? Um, I was uh, uh, serving as a, a military aide to a, uh, a flag officer. Uh, we had E-ring. Uh, E-ring is the outermost ring in the Pentagon. It had E-ring offices. Um, that... Uh, uh, I want to try to be brief, but but with, with enough detail, um, the the commute in D.C. is its own Olympic sport. Uh, get up at about four thirty, um, catch the bus at five fifteen, uh, get into the building at six thirty, and at seven o'clock I'm in uniform with my boss, you know, ready for the the day's business. Um, that day, our staff directorate that I was assigned to, because I'm uh, I'm an aide to. The, the head shed. I'm in, I'm in the headquarters of. Yes, we have about 600 staff members on in, in our directorate. Um, uh, our staff director was hosting over across to the Double Tree, uh, across from the Pentagon, a, a conference that uh, my general and my SES, the Senior Executive Service flag officer, it's a civilian flag officer, and then Colonel Williams, who was the aide to the the uniform two star. I was the aide to the SES. Uh, went over to the Double Tree. And Cheryl and Sandy and I settled in for what we expected to be a slow day with, with the principal and deputy out uh, getting some of the things done that we expected to be done. Sandy gets a call from her daughter, Sam, who worked up in New York at about 8.50, 8.55. You know, hey, Mom, turn the TV on. World Trade Center's made by plane. And we did what everybody, whether it's here in Austin or, or throughout the country, uh, you know, the car radio, cell phone, TV, whatever it was, watching the events begin to unfold. And uh, Sandy and I, I sat right outside of Miss Minig's office. The three of us, Cheryl, General Van Antwerp's uh, uh, secretary, Sandy, myself, went into Miss uh, Miss Minig's office. I turned the TV on. You see the North Tower, the the giant, huge gaping hole, and the, just the black putrid petroleum-based uh, fire, the smoke coming out. And we were expecting, you know, 
something small, you know, like the car chase in L.A. or something, you know, the new right. f- news flash, but it doesn't hold your interest for very long. And uh, but it, you could tell that, OK, this is this is profound, right. beautiful, clear day. Um, broadcasters are saying, you know, what a terrible tragedy, which is true using the word accident. But I think like a lot of Americans, there's a little voice in the back of your head going beautiful day, weather, you know, no clouds. If I've got a catastrophic failure as a pilot, I'm going to do it. And like exactly what Captain Sullenberger did in 08, sure. I'm going to put that thing out in the, you know, uh, in the, in the, Potomac. the, the Potomac, well, or the, the Hudson or the Atlantic, uh, if I've got any control of it. But to hit North Tower just straight on, mm. man, I didn't smell right. You know, the, the mechanical malfunction that would have to happen at departure or approach, the right altitude, right time, to have no control of the plane, and you hit. Boy, it just didn't smell right. And shortly, within a few moments, we'd watch, like everybody else, Flight 175 would crash into the South Tower at nearly 600 miles an hour. That was a yeah. oxygen and, left, man. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you meet it. Okay, this is not a normal day in our nation's life. Sandy, Cheryl, and I uh, just uh, uh, knelt down real quick. I led a quick prayer, just said, Lord, you know, and given the nature of New York, it's constriction of mobility, two largest office buildings. It's going to be the Lord, as much as we love our first responders, it's going to be the Lord doing the bulk of the life saving. And uh, about 9.35, uh, I'd had my morning Coke, that jolt of caffeine everybody needs first thing in the morning. All the galley slaves that get chained to their oars <laughs> in, the, in the Pentagon. Uh, I'd had my morning Coke, at, you know, 7.10. But was it panicked at that point? I mean, you guys at the Pentagon, and it's becoming no. apparent there's an attack, and is it... There are there were there were certainly staff directorates in the building that um, I won't say mobilized, but would be first reacting to something like this. Not not per se from a national security perspective of you know because you 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 know it's hijackers you you know primarily the FAA the military's got a a, an external view, um, but there are. Uh, folks in various uh, places, National Command Center, each service has its own component command center in the building, some very special dungeons of the Pentagon. Um, but our staff directorate was uh, was not one of those point of the spear, you know, we're, we're like regular spectators watching, you know, with the same interest. That, watching the and, sky fall. Uh, watching the sky fall. Um, and, uh, but we knelt, knelt down, said a prayer, and at 9.35, I stepped out to go to the men's restroom, uh, told Cheryl and Sandy I'd be back momentarily because, you know, the call of nature from my Coke a couple hours prior. And uh, those are the last words that I would speak to my two coworkers. And when I stepped out to, to give your listeners uh, a pretty clear picture of, of location here, if you recall that portion of the Pentagon that crumbled, the E-ring that crumbles 27 minutes after the attack, my window is the E-ring, which is what collapsed. Even though the plane made penetration of three of the five rings, my window is the fourth window to the left of the collapse point. If you recall, on the left side, it shears off cleanly. Right. The right side, it stays somewhat hinged, so you have a triangle of debris in the lower right-hand corner of the part that collapses. My window is the fourth window to the left of where it shears off cleanly. When I went to the men's restroom, I stepped out into the E-ring hallway, took a right, and walked through what would eventually crumble. Went up to the fourth corridor, which is the spokes that connect the rings. The men's restroom is just on the other side of the elevator. Took care of business, came out. I'm now walking back down the corridor toward the E-ring, and I'm in front of the elevator, and I'm about to take a right to come back through that part that that crumbles. I'm 15 to 20 yards from the nose of the aircraft making impact with the building. I'm the only, by the Lord's grace, I'm the only person in the E-ring that survived at the crash site. Mm. 15 Uh, to 20 feet? 20 yards, 15 to 20 yards. yards. Um, The right engine, I mean, I I can't see it. I mean, you know, I don't hear the plane coming i hear an impact um but uh the i wish i had my slides with me that uh, that i could show you guys but um the uh 
I am about to turn right back into the E-ring hallway to go back to uh, my office. And it's in my years as a kid in Fort Worth when Carswell was a big B-52 base, um, as an artillery officer, uh, and I've spent the majority of my years in heavy forces, uh, big tanks, big howitzers, big booms. Uh, I've never been around anything as loud as a 757 make an impact through your window. Uh, in those moments, in it's just like a nanosection. I mean, exactly like in Scripture when it says, you know, the trumpet will sound. I mean, it when the Lord returns, you, you know, I mean, it's that level allowed. Uh, and then in an, in that instant, I go from a well-lit hallway fully aware of my surroundings in charge of my faculties to an earthly hell of fire, choking, smoke, pain, disorientation. I thought bomb because, I mean, again, it's, it's loud. And then in the next moment, the vacuum, the concussion, the explosion uh, not only sets me ablaze but uh, throws me across the, uh, the corridor. And during that, you actually remember thinking bomb? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm conscious through all this until uh, until we get to Georgetown's emergency room. Um, in that moment, uh, there's three pains and emotions that you're that you're dealing with. Um, the I'm in my Class B uniform, which is just pants, belt, short sleeve shirt, no tie, name tag, access uh, access badge, name tag. Um, as I'm blasted across the, the room, I'm set ablaze. Uh, I then begin trying to get, I'm conscious, I begin trying to get up. And this is stop, drop, and roll is pretty immaterial at this point. Sure. There's an orange-yellow haze or, or coloration in front of me, and then in the exterior of my vision is black. The only light is the ambient glow of the flame that is either consuming me or the flame that is around me. Lights are out. I mean, you're an 80 ton, you got to understand, it's an 80-ton jet making impact with a building at 530 miles an hour with over 3,000 gallons of jet fuel left in the, in the fuel tanks. Uh, no sprinkler system is designed to put that out. Um, like I said, I'm the only person that, that survived in the E-ring, and at, there are other people that survived deeper into the building as the plane was coming through, but at the point that fuselage makes impact, um, those three pains and emotions are first the physical pain of the burns. I was burned on 60% of my body with 40% of my total body being third-degree burns. So my arms from fingertip to armpit on both arms are completely grafted circularly, circumferentially around both arms. My eyes, neck, ears are artificial cartilage. Thumbs have been reconstructed. The back, backs of my legs. Um, like I said, I'm 60% extra crispy, 40% original recipe. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. Those. It's a cheesy Kentucky Fried <laughs> but, Chicken uh, but You joke, couldn't understand but, on the other end of I mean, it, it, it's like, oh, man, thank you so much for saying that. Well, when it, it gets there, so intense. Yeah, if, if you don't take the break, I mean, it, 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 and if you get really graphically detailed, I mean, I, I've done radio before where I've had to say, look, you know, if you if you got your kids in the car, you need to, you sure. know, count to five you know, I count, and then, then you get into the, um, so the, the most immediate life-threatening injury, though, is not the external burns. It's the inhalation of the aerosolized jet fuel, the smoke, the putrid, it, very slick, oily petroleum, but, you know, it's like you're burning tires. Right. It's not like a, a clean, it's a petroleum-based uh, burning. And then the temperature of what you're breathing in is, you know, somewhere 300, 350 degrees. So it's like turning your oven on at home. And then sticking your head in there, and you want, the lungs do the same thing. The tissue of the lungs do the same thing the outer, outer flesh does. When it's burned, it begins that blistering, that liquid, that fluid that begins sure. gathering into the blistering. Um, so, in those, in that first pain and emotion is dealing with the massiveness of the burns. But I'll be brutally honest with you, the second pain and emotion overshadows the nature of the burn because. While there's a physical pain of, of what I'm dealing with, you're struggling to get to your feet. I could get to four points of contact, knees and hands, but because of the concussion and the damage to my inner ear, the, the, uh, the cochlea, the sense of balance, 
Um, trying to get up, uh, was unable to do so. I kept collapsing, kept falling. And in those moments, it's only a matter of seconds, minutes, but seemed to last an eternity because that second pain and emotion is the one that, that uh, truly defines the definition of terrorism, that inability to escape what you know is a life-threatening injury. So the physical pain of being burned, while horrible, was set aside to the agony of knowing I got seconds to try to live here. And the Lord knits every one of us in the womb with that zest for living or survival instinct, whatever you wish to call it. Because, look, life is precious. Um, and so in those moments, I'm trying to get up, struggling to survive, and recognizing what a futile, futile position I'm in. On, those, on that side of, of life, as opposed to the side of death, there comes that moment the gravity of what you are experiencing is so profound that you step over that line from life to death and in your heart and in your mind you resolve yourself to okay lord i got it this is how you're calling me into eternity and i did what we in the military are never trained to do i surrendered i quit i collapsed gave up and collapsed to the floor and waited to die Senator, was there sure. was there panic before that moment? Certainly in the desire to, to struggle to survive, because I, I had screamed out in a very loud voice, you know, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. It wasn't, Lord, save me from this calamity. It was a recognition that I had accepted. I mean, it's, it's the, the true surrender. It, I had accepted that this was a fight that I was losing. Uh, my... There was no way to know which way was to safety, which way was to danger, which, that this was a horrible, ghastly way to be called into eternity. And it seemed to take an eternity to get to that point of stepping over that line and saying, okay, I got it. Um, but in reality, was it seconds, minutes? Um, think, I mean, I guess there's nowhere to, no way to tell, really. I, I, I think probably two to three minutes i have a mild cognitive impairment damage to my short-term memory because of oxygen deprivation um because uh, i'm breathing but i'm not breathing oxygen right um and then so as i collapse to the floor uh resolving myself to my death uh there's that third pain and emotion and that's the one that as i lay there first in the peace and the silence and the quiet and the comfort of knowing where I would be in eternity. You know, at age 10 in 1971, I'd given my, my, uh, my heart to the Lord. I am as sinful for the Lord as everybody else is. But the calamity, the chaos, and the panic of struggling to survive had been set aside now in resolving myself to my death, that peace and quiet that passes all understanding, as Scripture tells us, knowing where I would be in eternity and waiting to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I thought about Mel and Matt. You know, when you're getting up at 4.30 and catching the bus at 5.15, I would generally just peck Mel on the cheek, look at Matt. You don't wake your 12-year-old up at, at 4.30 <laughs> in the morning. Sure. Um, had I known I was walking out to my death, I would have said goodbye with a much greater rigor than I did. I don't regret how I did because I didn't have that foreknowledge of, of knowing. Um, but the finality and the permanency of death and not seeing your loved ones and knowing that, that, uh, uh, what I expected to occur that day and go home and the things that I expected in life were coming to a very traumatic, abrupt end and thought about Mel and Matt and how I judged you by and that how I was going to, the next time I'd see them would be an eternity with the Lord and, as, as I lay there, was there wait, comfort? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, th there's just there are no words in, in the English language to give you the sense of peace, of knowing the comfort and the security of your eternity. There's no way to th there. There's no words I can give you to tell you what that feels like. Look, um, that kind of death is not easy. 
but I can't imagine living it and wondering where I'm going to spend eternity, and I've only got seconds to think about it. Sure. Do you feel like this is a second life? Because, I mean, not grammatically, but I almost speak like you almost feel like, well, part of me, or I died that day, and because it's almost like it was final. I felt like I was dead, but then well, you're not. It's a, it's a brink you don't want to do very often. I know that someday I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll hit that brink, and the Lord will at my appointed time. Um, no, it, it, uh, look, you, if I could give you the physical description of the hallway, the, I mean, um, there's the number of miracles and the things that the Lord ordered in my life that day that would allow me to now here 15 and a half years later be hanging out on the Trey Blocker show, <laughs> um, uh, the Lord ordered, um, the people that came into my life for the, during the rescue, the doctors. I mean, I, there's a lot. I mean, I, I know 30 minutes is the time limit, but, you know, if you want a no time limit, no disqualification match, I'm happy to stay here as long as you well, want. So, sure. But, Absolutely. Yeah. So there was a moment you were laying there and, and you, you thought you were going to meet the Lord. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But, but then after that, there came a moment where you thought, well, maybe not. So what happened yeah. after that? Well, if I may give you a little bit more of that sick burn humor, um, <laughs> you know, I, I uh, we'll keep laughing uncomfortably. Yeah. <laughs> uncomfortably, okay. You know, the uh, um, the Lord does have a sense of humor, although I wasn't really discovering it in that moment. It would be several months later that that I would discover it. A friend of mine said this to me, but as I was I was telling you, I was laying there, completely at peace you know, waiting for the Lord to call me home and hearing the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I didn't get the good and faithful servant part, but I did get the well done part. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as I'm laying there, uh, again, the pain is set aside. I'm laying there burning. Right. Is there a sound? I mean, you're not feeling it, but you're just. I'm, you're, I'm deaf. You're I mean, it, it's it's so it it it, it high is high It is quiet because I'm deaf, and it's quiet because I know I'm I'm waiting for that feeling of the soul departing the body. Um, I lay there, and and in my humanness, I'm like, okay, Lord, come on, I'm ready. Let's get on with this thing. And I could feel liquid on the left side of my face. Um, I had collapsed under one of the sprinkler heads and when you look at the pentagon the, the the part of the pentagon that is structurally damaged from impact is small structurally damaged from fire is a little bigger but the largest amount of destruction of the pentagon and why so much of it had to get replaced was flooding mm. the part of the building that was hit was the part that had been renovated we had just moved into it because when the pentagon had ground broken on it september 11th 1941 Wow. Um, it didn't have, it didn't meet Americans with Disability Code, Fire Code, lot, didn't have a sprinkler system, things like that. So part of the renovation was was modernizing the building to be able to get more people in, but also uh, bringing it up to uh, some of the safety codes and the like. Do you want, did it and, have defenses? You always hear about, even back even then, the if, White House if, had missile launchers. Even launcher, if I but, knew, I couldn't talk about it. Okay. Right. Unless you want me to talk about it, and then I have to kill you. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, I'd rather, I'd I'm rather just, not. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. But I just Maybe kinda, next I never week? thought about that. I was just um, like, did they have dudes roaming around out there on the perimeter that, I mean, like you said, you can't talk about it anyway. Yeah. Um, but the uh, when you look at the damage and the what I would call the building material shrapnel that is scattered around me, the, the plane makes penetration similar to uh, like a banana you're peeling. When the nose of the fuselage makes impact with the outer earring wall, the nose of the fuselage begins to peel like the top of a banana. But then the plane, the tail actually makes deepest penetration. The kinetic energy of 80 tons and 530 miles an hour. The plane turns inside out, similar to when you take your long sleeve shirt off and you turn the sleeve inside out as you take the, that's how the plane goes through the building. The plane is turning inside out. The 59, not including the terrorists, the 59 passengers and crew are being dismembered and scattered into the building, and 125 of your fellow Americans in the building are being killed as that's mm -hmm. happening. The damage to the, because the plane is penetrating two floors, it penetrates three rings and two floors worth of uh, water pipe. Will you say, will you clarify rings? 
You've mentioned that the many Pentagon times. The Pentagon has five rings. The inner ring of the Pentagon is the A ring that immediately surrounds the courtyard. Oh, okay. And then that's the A so ring. When you're looking from the, the, the aerial, you see all the... the right. Okay, the segments. Right. Okay. Right. So it's five rings. rings, five sides, five floors. Okay. Um, so you've got all that water damage with broken pipes. That water is now pouring into the building, but there was sufficient water pressure behind the sprinkler head that I collapse under to extinguish the flame that is consuming me. As I'm laying there, and I can feel that liquid on the left side of my face, can't feel much else, to be brutally honest with you. Um, the only reason I think I can feel the water is because it was so cold. Hmm. Um, but I, I'm sitting there going, okay, Lord, come on, I'm ready for this. And that feeling doesn't happen. I open my eyes, and it's a lot like the 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 rings are just like the you know, the, the, uh, the tire, five tires, but then the spokes of the quarters. I am at the intersection of the E-ring and the fourth quarter, that T. And when I open my eyes, I'm looking down the fourth quarter toward the A-ring. Again, the E-ring's the outermost ring. The A-ring is the innermost okay. ring. And it was a lot like if you were a ship at sea, you can't see the light bulb of the lighthouse, but you can see the reflection of the light on the surface of the water I could see the light at the far end of the A, toward the A-ring, reflecting off the tile. The smoke is filling, there's still fire around me. The smoke is filling up the, the corridor and the, and the ring, but the lights are still on well, a good 80, 90 yards uh, down, maybe 100, down toward the, the A-ring. I now have directional control. I've been blown up against a wall. I use that wall as a third and fourth point of contact to get up. As I am, this is a stagger, it's not a walk, it's not a run, because again, the damage to my ear sense of balance, I am up against the wall of the fourth quarter, shuffling, and as I'm working my way out of thicker smoke into a little bit lighter smoke toward the light, um, I can begin to see uh, the damage to my body. I still don't really feel it to be... Because I, I know I've got to get to medical care and fast. Right. I am skinned alive. The only pieces of clothing still intact are my leather shoes. Uh, I was wearing leather uh, floor shine uh, uh, shoes that day, the standard black you know, mm -hmm. uh, leather as opposed to patent leather. My leather belt. The front of my shirt is still intact but covered in my own blood. I've got a burn scar that runs across the top of the shoulders down across the sides of the because the, as I'm laying flat waiting to die all what's what's not touching the floor is burning mm. it was actively on fire oh yeah before the before the before the sprinklers extinguish it um, and so as I'm coming down the the fourth quarter from the e-ring toward the a ring there's flesh hanging from the arms my face I can already begin to feel swelling uh, my belt is intact. I have a little bit of my pants in the growing area. The pants at the knees are melted to me because when I was trying to stand up and I'm on all fours, the stylish polyester army <laughs> issue, you know, is melting to my knees. I've got, you know, my, my knees, uh, you can see the scar from where the, um, my access badge is melted. My name tag is melted, covered in, in the blood of, of, the damage to me on the front the best kindest way to say it is i am terribly indisposed as i'm coming down that hallway i come across four men bill mckinnon roy wallace john davies and chuck knoblock not the baseball player but a really sure. big a really big uh, operations research systems analyst uh, colonel um the they had come out of a B-ring door. The B-ring is the next to innermost ring in the Pentagon. Uh, I'd covered about 25, 30 yards in this condition. They had come out of the B-ring doors uh, to try to find uh, other, you know, they, they had coworkers that they knew were in danger. They weren't looking for me specifically. In my relief of seeing Bill, Roy, Chuck, and John, and my exhaustion of having covered 25, 30 yards in this condition, I collapse in front of Roy. This is not a place to tarry. Um, 
fire's burning. You know, we're only 40 yards, 50 yards from impact. This is not a place to just be with me and wait for medical care to get to me. Right. In fact, the fire door between the A ring and the corridor entrance is closed. Had Bill, Roy, Chuck, and John not come into that fourth quarter, I would have eventually gotten down to that door and either sat down and waited for somebody to rescue me or died of my died of smoke inhalation or my injuries. I collapsed in front of Roy. I know Bill. Bill and I had been at Command and General Staff College together, but the others I, I did not know. In there, recognizing this is not a place to, to tarry. We're in the danger zone. we got to get out of here. Um, in their haste to move me, they each grab a limb, grab me and give that first exertion to pick me up, but I don't come with them. Mm. When you're burned that way, fluid is what holds your is what really holds our bodies together. It's the connectivity that, that holds us together. But it's a lot like when you take, a, you know, you do a paraffin treatment, put your hand in the hot wax, pull it out, it'll cool. When they grab me and give that exertion to pick me up, they pull chunks of flesh off of me and I begin screaming at them to leave me alone. It's my first insight into the pain thresholds that are ahead of me. Um, they're degloving parts of my body that are, that are, because they they recognize that uh, Chuck being the biggest of the of the four of them, touching me is absolutely agonizing. But they roll me over on my left hand side, so I'm laying on the left side of my torso, left arm. And Chuck forcibly puts his arms underneath the left side of my torso. And essentially, what the four of them do is shake hands with each other at the wrist. With instead of grasping me, they grasp each other with my body weight resting. And of course, that's taking chunks of my back off. Mm. <laughs> I'm yelling at them, leave me alone. I'm yelling at Bill, call Mel, call Mel. But of course, Bill doesn't recognize me. I am, I am a blackened steak uh, with legs and appendages. They carry me down toward the B ring door, into the B ring, into an A wing, A ring access, and. Essentially, what becomes a hasty triage site, they set me down at the intersection of the 5th and 6th quarter intersection at the A-ring. Uh, a great Air Force doctor named John Baxter, and as an Army guy, it's always hard to say great in Air Force in the same <laughs> sentence. But, but um, This is what does it. Yeah, well, This is look, what it takes for you to make that concession. Look, look anybody with the morphine is a great doc, okay? <laughs> um, Dr. Baxter uh, is an Air Force flight surgeon, grabs his go bag, he's... he's uh, a staff officer, he's not at the, the clinic in the Pentagon that, that treating people as an active surgeon, but he is a staff officer for medical planning, things of that nature. But anybody in the P Pentagon so so big. I mean, it is, I mean, let me give you an example of how big it is. The U.S. Capitol fits on each side, so you can put five U.S. Capitals at the Pentagon. I don't that's think how, people realize that. No. Yeah, that's how big it is. That. And so all the medical personnel have, because of the nature of how big that is and, and and anyway, Dr. Baxter has his go bag. As I'm placed down by Bill, Roy, Chuck, and John, a wonderful lady from the Navy, Natalie Ogletree, Ogletree, comes down and kneels down beside me. I am, again, still terribly indisposed, but I'm, I have control of my mental faculties, but not my physical. And I'll let your imagination sure. answer that question for you. Natalie kneels down beside me, and we say the Lord's Prayer together, the 23rd Psalm. She reads the 91st Psalm over me. Dr. Baxter comes to the left-hand side, and there's about five or six other people that have been placed here. And because it's at the intersection of the, of the corridors, at the A-ring, there's staircase. People are coming down. They're jumping over us. I mean, it's mm. this is sure, not a— chaos. Yeah. yeah, well, but we do chaos well in the military, so it works <laughs> out really well. But point is, is this is not a sterile emergency room. I am—there you know, people running and, you know, and on the like— and not exactly concerned, maybe. I mean, there's panic, so... Well, but, I mean, Dr. Baxter wasn't looking for us. He just came down, saw the five of us that are... Because he's on the fifth floor coming down. Um, he sees the five of us and comes to me first. And in all my years of training, I mean, you you know, the triage is that you treat the most seriously injured. I mean, while I can't see how the others are injured, I know how I'm injured, and he treats me first, and that tells me... I mean, I don't have to ask him what that means. Right. Dr. Baxter, because I am so badly charred, along with the soot and the, the smoke and the, the petroleum and the, and the like, um, comes to me and, uh, and 
you know, says, you know, what's your name? And I'm able to tell And that's when Bill, my buddy who's standing, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm telling him, call Mel, call right. Mel. Um, that's now he knows it's me. Dr. Baxter asked me, you know, besides what I can see, is there anything else damages the doc? I don't know. He puts it to, I have no good flesh other than what's underneath my leather shoes. He takes the leather shoes off, takes the socks that are left under what the leather is covering, puts the morphine shot in my right foot and the IV in the left. I'm eventually evacuated out by the extended golf cart that's the ambulances in the pen. And what seemed to take an eternity burning to death in the hallway in the, in the, in the, at the crash site, all of this is taken from the time of the attack to the time I get to Georgetown is about an hour and 10, 15 minutes. But this seems to be just going lickety split. Hmm. This seems to be just seconds going by in all the, the, but I eventually get taken out to North parking, get put in the back of a Ford expedition. One of the nurses from the uh, air force nurse that works in the, the military clinic, not a hospital, but a very robust clinic. Because uh, again, you got thirty thousand people in that building uh, on forty acres. Um, she's at on, on her two weeks of annual training, but normally works at Georgetown University Hospital. It's the only hospital she knows how to get to. She hops in the back of that Ford Expedition. I'm loaded in the back. Major John Collison hops in the back with me. I knew John. John knew it was me because of the toe tag right. that Doctor Baxter had put on me. That had my, what he had given me, my name, and what time he had given it to me. She says, let's get to Georgetown. I'm taking to Georgetown. I'm the only casualty taken to Georgetown that day. That's prescient and I believe Lord ordained and directed for two reasons. One, I have the entire hospital's undivided attention. Mm. No other casualties. When Dr. D. Simone, who's outside uh, doing, you know, preparing for triage, I pull up, they dump me. Yeah, I don't need to look at him. Get him inside. He's critical. I can I immediately get him inside. Right. He and his triage team will stand there for the next four hours. Where did everyone go? I assume, obviously, another hospital. Was there one? Um, Anova Fairfax, Arlington, um, uh, mostly on the the Virginia side. Some will eventually get uh, into the D.C. hospitals, but medevac helicopters will shut down. In fact, shortly after Flight 77 makes impact with the Pentagon, uh, Vice President Cheney will turn to Secretary of Transportation Mineta inside the White House Situation Room and say, shut down all airspace in the U.S., and that includes medevac helicopters in D.C. Right. So that's another reason why it's pressure I'm at Georgetown, because I, not only do I have the entire hospital's undivided attention, but the attending physician in Georgetown Emergency Room, which is a teaching hospital, is Dr. Michael Williams. And he had spent two years in a trauma fellowship learning how to be a train wreck doctor and be an attending in an emergency room over at the Washington Hospital Center under the direction of Marion Jordan and James Jang. Dr. Jordan was the director of the Burn Center at the Washington Regional Hospital. Wow. And Dr. Jang is chief of research. And at the time, Dr. Jordan was the president of the American Burn Association, the specialty association. So, so from the perspective of all the emergency rooms right. throughout D.C., I've got the third best burn doctor available to me. And because no medevac helicopters are going to fly... I'm going to be at Georgetown for about five hours. Normally in an emergency room, it's airway, breathing, circulation. Once those are stabilized, you get sent to whatever specialized critical care you need. Right. Because helicopters aren't flying, uh, I'm going to remain there. And Dr. Williams will not just do the airway, breathing, and circulation, um, but he will begin to do the after I'm sedated. I need to tell you that story. But after I'm sedated, he'll do the airway breathing circulation issues. He'll de- begin to do the escharotomy, the debridement. He'll begin to start skinning me like a fish. Mm. In fact, the, es- the, the escharotomy, the excisions, because you are swelling like an overinflated ball. Mm-hmm. If you remember the first Rocky movie where he tell, Rocky tells Mick, you know, his eyes are because cut of the me. beating, cut me right. because he's so swollen to relieve the swelling so he can see. That's what they're having to do to me, the length of my back, the length of my legs, the length of my arms. When I get wheeled in, the emergency room, it's a battle drill. 
People are giving voice commands. There's intensity. There's gravity, but there's no chaos. I mean, and, and folks have been in the military, medical services, police, fire, know what a battle drill is. I mean, you're, you're trying to bring as much order out of calamity as you possibly can. Uh, I can hear, and some of the staff are talking about uh, various things I don't understand, medical terminology, you know, things of that nature. Um, but I, I hear one of the staff at what jewelry is he wearing? And normally jewelry has to be cut off the burn survivor, whether it's a necklace, a bracelet, a ring, as the body where the body's been burned begins to swell. Um, that jewelry becomes a tourniquet and you can, particularly if it's a necklace, uh, you'll asphyxiate and you'll choke to death. Right. Normally it has to be cut. And my hands, uh, are, my fingers are blackened hot dogs that are connected to a blackened steak called my palm. Mm. And Dr. Williams, and my eyes are nearly closed. I mean, I'm looking through just slits in my eyes. Dr. Williams comes to the left side. And I, I recognize the gravity of this moment, just like in the Pentagon, that while the Lord spared my life in the building an hour ago, the question of life or death has not been answered. And I can see in Dr. Williams' eyes the gravity of what he's telling me. And he says, Brian, we're going to do the best that we possibly can for you. And I told him, and, and speaking is very difficult. I've got gunk coming out of my lungs. I mean, it is very labored. I mean, my my throat, vocal, all that's burnt. I mean, it's it's very difficult speaking. And I tell Dr. Williams I want to do two things. First, I asked for, I didn't want the wedding ring destroyed by being cut off of me. I wanted it taken off. John Collison, who had accompanied me, John and I, I knew John. And uh, John was, a, and I have never compared myself to Christ here. Uh, I can compare some of the circumstances in a senior subordinate relationship, and I'm the subordinate. I'm not going through nearly as bad as what the Lord's going through. Right. But John Collison was for me what John the disciple was for Christ at crucifixion. John's standing right behind Dr. Baxter. I'm sorry, Dr. Williams. Judith Rogers is one of the nurses that has answered the all-hands-on-deck call from all the clinics in the hospital closing and everybody just because they, they don't know what She's there. I told Dr. Williams that I wanted the wedding ring taken off, and I wanted it given to Mel. And I told John, you know, give that to Mel and tell her that I love her. And Judith Rogers reaches with her gloved hand. Judith, the nurse, reaches for the ring. Gold melts somewhere between 700 and 800 degrees, but the body melts long before that. And as I've been cooling and hardening, you know, the steak that comes right off the grill is pretty, mm -hmm. but once it sits for a while, it, you know, hardens. That's, that's what's happening. She reaches for the ring and gives it a slight tug and degloves the finger. Blood begins streaming out of the base of my hand, and I don't recall it hurting because you're just looking at exposed bone and, and uh, blood streaming out of the, the base of the, the, where the palm and the finger connect. And... Judith hands the, the ring to John and I said, give that to Mel and tell her that I loved her. And I don't recall it hurting because of back, Dr. Baxter's morphine shot, but really rather I was concentrating on the dignity and the finality of the death that I knew that I was dying. The second thing I asked for from Dr. Williams is after the ring was done and John says, yes, sir, I will. I asked for the hospital chaplain. Chaplain Cirillo comes to the right-hand side. And it was a very simple prayer. It was not one of, you know, I know I'm about to, to be in eternity and what faith am I going to be? It was with the same peace and comfort of, of that silence in the hallway. But it was just, she led a prayer that just simply said, you know, Brian or Lord, if you've brought Brian here and under the care and direction of Dr. Williams and the team here and Brian survives, it's your will that he live, we'll salute that flag. But if you've brought Brian here to 
to quietly call him into eternity in the compassion and care of his fellow Americans. We'll salute that flag, too. It was a prayer that, you know, what faith am I going to be? That was already strong. That was already firm. But it was simply recognizing whose picture hangs at the top of my chain of command photos, not just of my life, but my eternity. And when that prayer was over with, it was with the strength not of a soldier, but my faith in Christ that I could look at Dr. Williams very laboredly say, let's get on with it resting in the comfort of, of who was in charge in that operating room. I had an exceptional physician, but there's only one great physician. Pull my head back. I can feel the, the intubation tube go in. I don't know what Dr. Williams had to give me to sedate me. Right. Uh, um, but I just remember, I remember seeing the mask come over, the tubes going in, and then... Uh, that would be my first of a lot of hard days, a lot of a lot more trips to an operating room, um, and uh, by the Lord's grace, I'm still here. I'd love to tell sure. you so much more, Trey. I mean, there's Mel's part, other things. Right. I mean, I know that the time constraints don't allow us to do that, but right. um, well, like you said, by the by the grace of God, you were here. You endured over thirty reconstructive surgeries. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, uh, any, any, any person, uh, in that situation would, uh, probably go through various emotions. One being, um, anger at God for putting you in that position. We, would you share with us how, how that actually strengthened you and your faith and, and, and how you came through that? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question, Trey, because, you know, some people are, you know, were you were you a believer before versus believer after? You know, was your faith as strong? And I would say yes, just not as tested. Because look, my anger wasn't at the Lord, and and I can honestly tell you that because look, there were there were days, weeks in ICU. I pleaded for the Lord to finish. I mean, the pain thresholds you are dealing with. Um, astronomical i mean i i do not recommend this to husbands out there to to do what you know endure what i did but from september 10th of 2001 you know prior you know i like all husbands i got that guilt trip no no disrespect to the lady present but i got that <laughs> guilt trip of all wives give their husbands about the pain of childbirth right from 937 <laughs> september 11th on mel hasn't said a thing about childbirth but the I did ask I did not ask God why me because look we live in a fallen sinful world um, biblical truths are biblical truths evil men made an evil decision and I pleaded for the Lord to finish it because the the agony that I was enduring was more than my desire to be with Mel and Matt. And I never asked God, why me? But I sure asked him, why didn't you take me? Sure. And, um, but ultimately, you know, he had a different purpose. And whether that was Mel and I doing our our ministry afterwards, finishing out my my career as something of an ombudsman for the Army. um, Watching Matt get married. Watching Matt get married, you know, getting elected to to go serve in the the state legislature. Ultimately, the Lord is our assignments officer, and he does. You know, the guy in Washington puts a blindfold on and throws a dart. Uh, the Lord doesn't put a blindfold on and throw a dart. You know, he knows exactly he's got what he's doing. Yeah. Right. Does it make yeah. your job seem trivial now when you've been through that? And someone's like, "Well, we need to talk about whether or not we can give a million dollars to these." You know, and it's just you're hashing up money sometimes. No, it no, just no. Seem... It doesn't make it not not at all. That make, look, because you're making you're making serious decisions. Um, like we did today with, with the, uh, the, the school choice bill in the Senate, you know, you're making serious decisions. You're trying to make sure you're doing the right decisions. you you know, elements of elements of the bill, the amendments and the like, I guess the, uh, and, and I say this with seriousness and with the, but anything that's humorous, I always have to have some element of truth. Um, if anybody's going to really work on me, you know, to try to get me to, well, you got to vote for this or, yeah, you know, it, I, I get to, you know, if anybody's going to threaten me, 
<laughs> Let me just tell you, it's fun to be able to tell somebody, you better bring something bigger than a 757. <laughs> and then just in case, I got a 357, you know. <laughs> um, but no, it, it, but um, the liberties that we enjoy, whether it's, even though Senator Hinojosa and Senator Uresti are on another side of the aisle, when you've paid in blood, there's an emotional and concrete connection to what you're doing. Your political differences are the E-ring, but your humanity is the A-ring? Hmm, not sure I understand the question, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is I, I believe what I believe, and, you know, I've been in, in places around this world that there are folks in this nation that have no idea how good they have it. And that doesn't mean we should settle for where we are as a nation or as a state. But it does mean that folks like myself, Senator Hinojosa, others that have been to other parts of the world representing the United States, we don't realize how good we have it governmentally, even with all our warts and problems. We don't realize how good we have it economically. And we don't realize, in many respects, um, how easy at times we have it. Look, liberty's hard, but complaining about something when you really have it pretty... I mean, go to Central America. I spent three and a half months in Central America after Hurricane Mitch, a Category 5 hurricane, sat on top of Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. You want to see depravity? You want to see poverty? Go to a former communist-dominated country after Category 5 sat on top of it. Right. You'll see depravity. You know, go to the Middle East and see how women are treated. Then complain to me about how you're mistreated here. I mean, I, well, I mean, and it's that's, just that sense of perspective. That, right. That, and that's one of the reasons we are very thankful that you agreed to come on the show because there are definitely a lot of folks around this country who, who need this perspective and to need to know the sacrifices that men and women in the military have made um, yeah. for generations in this country for them to be able to have the freedoms that yeah. they have. And yeah. uh, a lot of people do take it for granted, yeah. and that's unfortunate. So I'm glad we got to share your story with a lot of folks today. And Well, thank you. And so we appreciate you being on. And, and I know your f very fine chief of staff, Mr. Stratman, who is sitting here next to us. He's uh, now going to demand a pay raise, you know. I bet he is. <laughs> I, I, I know he shared with you our tradition of closing out the show with a quote. And uh, he, sa he said that uh, you've come with something good. Would you mind sharing with us? Um, gosh, I got so many. My staff give me presents at the end of each session of their favorite quote from that session. So, uh, last session's quote was, uh, I love the smell of legislation in the morning. <laughs> um, and that, cause that, but, um, gosh, what should I use this morning? Uh, uh, well, there's John Wayne quotes. There's, there's scripture. Always a there's, good one. Give uh, us one John Wayne quote and one, one of your favorite scriptures. Uh, one of my favorite John Wayne, there's a bunch, but I guess the one that I could repeat on, on radio is uh, <laughs> um, uh, from uh, um, Sands of Iwo Jima. Life's tough. It's even tougher if you're stupid. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, uh, but um, other quotes, uh, there are, the, in the political world, or Clausewitz said, war is politics by another means. That means politics is war by another means at times. So a lot of my quotes, my staff, you know, gets the um, uh, the session of 2013. Um, uh, the, I think that it was the quote. I think it was uh, set your selector switch to auto. <laughs> um, on an M16, there are uh, uh, M4. There's safe, semi, auto. And uh, there's sometimes when we go do political battle on the floor in committee, um, uh, sometimes you want to be the guy that gets told, set your selector switch to auto. <laughs> so uh, scripture-wise, I'll, I'll give you uh, the one that Mel and I have clung to for uh, since September 11th. She would come into the ICU. I couldn't speak. I had a, a, uh, a tube in every orifice of my body, and I mean every. Right. And she would come in and, and read scripture. She had a, um, a glossary index, you know, what words. And she said, do you want to 
you want to hear scriptures that deal with suffering, and I could just shake my head. She picked 1 Peter 5.10 in a series of, of scriptures. And after she read it, I immediately, you know, we latched onto it. And it's in 1 Peter 5.10, it says, After you have suffered a little while, God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so whether that was the physical suffering I was going through or the marital suffering or the financial suffering or the professional suffering, national cultural suffering that we're going through right now, um, blesses the nation whose God is the Lord. I mean, the Lord, the Lord doesn't waste our pain. We don't always know what it's going to be used for, but he doesn't waste it. Nothing's wasted with the Lord. So. Senator Brian Birdwell, we appreciate your service to the country. We appreciate your service to the state. We thank you for being on the show today, and we'll hope you come back soon. Hoo We'll look forward to it. Well, uh, you know what you ought to do is you ought to get Mel in here. I would uh, love to do that. I'm sure the ladies would love to. Yeah, that's Absolutely. what. Uh, yeah, you got to get the commanding general in. You know, so. It, so Allison will put that on the schedule. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you've been listening to the Trey Blocker Show. Uh, tune in to iTunes, to SoundCloud. Look for us on TreyBlocker.com, and we'll. See you next time. You've been listening to The Trey Blocker Show. You can find us at treyblocker.com or through your favorite podcast listening app.